0: Hello, and welcome back to Interpreting India. Even as the world looks, hopefully, to emerge from the shadow of the pandemic, 2022 has so far been defined by another variant of COVID-19, precarious geopolitical relations, and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. In this season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host, Srinath Raghavan, and this week, we are discussing China and the Indo-Pacific. Over the past few months, the Indo-Pacific has seen a flurry of activity. China launched the Global Security Initiative and its foreign minister, Wang Yi, went on a tour of the Pacific Islands. More significantly, Beijing concluded a security agreement with the Solomon Islands, which sent shockwaves across the region. Around the same time, the Quad held its second in-person summit in Tokyo, and the United States assured in a series of regional partnerships, including the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum and I2U2. All the while, the war in Ukraine has continued to cast its long shadow on the region. In this episode of Interpreting India, we discuss the recent developments in the Indo-Pacific and its implications for India. Joining us today is Ambassador Vijay Gokhale. Ambassador Gokhale is a non-resident senior fellow at Carnegie India. He retired from the Indian Foreign Service in January 2020 after a diplomatic career that spanned 39 years. He has served both as the Foreign Secretary of India from January 2018 to January 2020, and as India's ambassador to China from January 2016 to October 2017. He has worked extensively on matters relating to the Indo-Pacific region, with special emphasis on Chinese politics and diplomacy. Ambassador Gokhale is the author of two books, Tiananmen Square, the making of a protest, and the long game: How the Chinese negotiate with India. Ambassador Gokhale, welcome to Interpreting India. We are delighted to have you with us.
1: Thank you, thank you, Srinath.
0: Ambassador Gokhale, I want to start by talking about China's recent outreach in the Indo-Pacific. Now, in late May, we saw Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi uh, undertaking a ten-day tour of the Pacific Islands. Now, how do we understand China's desire for such an extensive outreach to this part of the world, the Pacific Islands?
1: Uh, Srinath, firstly, let me start by saying that China's outreach to the South Pacific is not that new. Uh, For a while now, China and Taiwan have been competing with the South Pacific nations on the whole issue of diplomatic recognition. And therefore, China has been present in the South Pacific in terms of giving economic assistance uh, and help to those countries which switch which diplomatic relations from Taiwan to China. What is new this time is an effort by the Chinese side to give a security or semi-security dimension to its cooperation with the Pacific Island states. Now, the Chinese will, of course, want the rest of the world to believe that this is because of certain developments that have taken place in the Indo-Pacific over the last 12 to 18 months, uh, including the uh, activation of the Quad at the summit level, as well as the new arrangement called AUKUS between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States. But the fact of the matter is, Srinath, that for some time now, China has been engaging in a diplomacy and politics in the South China Sea and in the Western Pacific. Uh, And this diplomacy is aimed at building up its own uh, political relations with these countries, while at the same time diluting the system of American alliances, because it believes that the continuation of American alliances in the Western Pacific in some way threatens China's security. Now, of course, moving into the South Pacific in the manner that it did, first with the Solomon Islands, and then an attempt to uh, get a Pacific Island-wide security or quasi-security agreement was, of course, an entirely new level of their uh, presence in the South Pacific. But I think this was also a way of pushing back against the Quad against the whole idea of the Indo-Pacific and, in a sense, challenging the West um, to put their money where their mouth is because China has launched the Global Development Initiative and the Global Security Initiative and it is willing to back this with its own money. So, in a sense, what they are trying to do is dare the West to match them pound for pound or dollar for dollar or renminbi for renminbi. And we have to look at what is happening in the South Pacific, or for that matter, even in South Asia, from that perspective, not from the perspective of this being anything new. Sure. You mentioned about the global
0: security initiative that the Chinese have launched, and also the global development initiative, and that these are, in a sense, to be understood within that kind of broader framework. Uh, The Chinese had also, if I'm not mistaken, talked about a joint development vision, Uh, and a five-year plan for the region. But that doesn't seem to have made much headway.
1: You know, this is not uh, uh, the, the global security initiative and the global development initiative are part of a much larger united front tactic or united front strategy by the Chinese to build a body of countries which in a sense stands with China and therefore forms a security a perimeter which gives some comfort to the Chinese at a time when they feel the Americans are building a containment strategy against them. This is not the first time that they have used this strategy. Uh, in a sense, in the 1950s, the Bandung Conference and the whole idea of Asian solidarity, came, which came from China, the concept of Asian solidarity, uh, was a united front tactic. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Uh, the Chinese also similarly adopted a United Front tactic against uh, the unipolar power, the United States. Uh, Now, the current global security and development initiatives, in a sense, are the means by which China hopes that they can counter what they consider to be the hegemonic intentions of the United States in a post-COVID situation where Uh, The two largest countries by far in terms of economy and military power are China and the United States. And although the world pretends that we are moving towards multipolarity, in fact, these two poles are so large that it might well, at least for the next five to 10 years, be a bipolar world. In this context, then, the GSI and the GDI are uh, Uh, sort of Chinese strategies to build that larger united front uh, in order to ensure that if there is a competition with the United States, there are a sizable number of countries that stand with China in multilateral institutions and even bilaterally.
0: Sure. And uh, does this have any specific implication for India and South Asia? I know we are quite far away from the Pacific Islands, but the Indo-Pacific is very much our own neighborhood. So what does this mean really for us?
1: I think these are ideas which have uh, a deep impact in South Asia. Uh, My own belief is that uh, after 2010, uh, China's entire doctrine uh, in its periphery has changed from homeland defense to meeting the challenges coming towards China in its periphery, in other words, beyond its homeland. And therefore, all the peripheral and proximate regions and states and countries then become uh, a sort of uh, battleground, if it were to be, if that was the word I could use, uh, in the event that China has a problem with the United States. And South Asia is very much a region abutting China. It is a proximate or peripheral region. Uh, Therefore, in that context, the Belt and Road Initiative and now the GSI and the GDI have a very serious implication because China is going to put its political, its military, its economic and its uh, cultural capabilities to work, its capacities in all these areas to work, in order to build stronger relations with these countries so that if there is a challenge to them in any manner uh, they uh, have a sort of uh, a perimeter wall a security wall uh, in which they uh, within which they feel relatively safe uh, now what the specific details of the gdi and the gsir have not been spelt out by the chinese it is like the community for the shared future of mankind a fuzzy notion And it is fuzzy simply because it is a tactic or a strategy to separate the West and the rest. Uh, So long as they uh, tell the rest of the world that these initiatives are part of an effort to build a 20th century world in which all of us have a shared uh, future and therefore we should all work together and portrays the other side as uh, a small group of countries which are engaging in power politics of the 20th century, then China would have achieved its objectives. So, I don't think uh, the GSI and the GDI at this stage at least bear a uh, close looking with a with a microscope. You won't find much there.
0: Sure, but presumably the countries that China is trying to woo will look for some substantive content behind these slogans. I mean, uh, for instance, you take the example of a country like Sri Lanka, which is undergoing so much turmoil. I mean, as and when they have a more stable government. Surely that government will look to China for certain initiatives, etc. Because part of its problem stems with its sort of economic relations with China itself. So is China geared up to actually delivering on some of this?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think China, in any case, uh, understands its strategic requirements. And wherever it has to fulfill those requirements, it has put money Uh, as well as equipment, as well as technology into those countries, either as a grant or as a soft loan. Uh, That was the whole purpose of the Belt and Road Initiative. And the GDI and the GSI essentially are uh, uh, sort of spreading the BRI concept at a global level. Uh, So uh, I think that uh, strategy and tactic the Chinese have adopted will continue. Uh, The question, however, is whether their current economic situation will allow them to maintain the same level of activity as they had in the 10 years between 2010 and 2020. Uh, Now, if I were to go by the latest available uh, data and information and writings on the Chinese economy, my sense is that they are facing very considerable headwinds. The property market, the retail market, The run on the banks that we have seen lately because of the liquidity crisis in the banks uh, are all factors which uh, make it more difficult and not less difficult for the Chinese to spend money abroad. Of course, the silver lining is that their export growth uh, targets have been substantially met. Uh, And as we know, uh, exports have powered the the Chinese overseas uh, uh, direct investment as well as aid, as well as grants. But in the current stressed economic situation, whether China can continue to put that sort of money abroad is, uh, is questionable. But in the short term, in any case, uh, aside from the funds, uh, it is also the image of China as a defender of the interests of the third world, as a, a, a partner to the third world, which feels that there are too many conditionalities that the West puts on it in return for giving money, which resonates with the third world, so in the short term we could see a situation where China signs off on agreements to make big pledges of money. Uh, that might take a little time to fructify, but in the meantime, uh, a lot of diplomatic goodwill and political goodwill is gained by the Chinese. So I think we should be uh, we should not simply go by the amount of money they put but by the resonance that their message has in uh, African capitals, in Asian capitals, and in Latin American capitals. And I think that is the key that we need to follow in the next uh, 18 to 24 months.
0: Sure. Um, Now, China's activism in the recent months has also met with certain kinds of responses uh, from its potential adversaries. Uh, We saw that there was a second in-person meeting of the Quad, uh, which was held in Tokyo. Uh, I was wondering what your assessment of that particular summit was. Uh, is the Quad moving away from a more loser kind of a political grouping to something which has a more a clearer focus
1: in terms of what it wants to do vis-a-vis China? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Srinath. But before I answer that, I think we need to be clear that uh, while some countries uh, uh, are concerned about uh, China's activism or a more assertive or even a more aggressive China, a large group of countries in what is called the global south uh, really don't get affected by China's behavior in quite the way that its neighbors or some of its larger competitors get affected. Uh, therefore, the narrative, we should not be carried away by the narrative that the recent aggressive or assertive Chinese policies have created a tidal wave of of discomfort or unhappiness across the world, that is simply not true. Many countries still believe that China offers a viable economic, financial and technological option to the West. Uh, Now, coming to Quad, of course, there is no doubt of the traction it has gained in the last 12 months. After all, in just the last one year, there have been four summit meetings, two of them in person. And the sort of subjects that are being discussed in Quad now, as we can see from the latest summit statement, range from infrastructure and trade to space, cyber security and even uh, a regional economic arrangement. Uh, Now, having said that, of course, I should add that many of these ideas are still in the exploratory stage or in the formative stage. Uh, We don't actually have an infrastructure plan that Quad has put up as uh, a sort of counter to the Belt and Road Initiative. We don't have uh, a a structure to negotiate the terms and conditions of the IPEF, the way in which RCEP is now a functioning regional economic arrangement. Uh, So there is a way to go until these structures or uh, uh, systems evolve so that they can provide uh, the Asia-Pacific and the Indo-Pacific with alternatives to the Chinese, uh, the the models. But on the other hand, uh, we have to say that there has been a good start in some key areas. Uh, I would list health as one key area where uh, close to a billion doses of the COVID vaccine uh, has been delivered in the region. And the four countries have pledged to help out with further uh, health-related assistance in order to ensure, you know, overall well-being. Uh, The second, I would say, is in the maritime domain. Uh, And this new initiative, the Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness uh, Initiative, uh, which will be used to uh, initially combat illegal fishing. Uh, is something which is welcome because what you are putting into place is a system in the Indo-Pacific in which countries collaborate to ensure that the economic security of all of them is protected using the technological capabilities of some of the larger countries which have the capacity. And to that extent, this suggests a kind of cooperation between those who have the technology Uh, willing to share it with those who don't for the common uh, good and for the common security of the region. Uh, The third initiative, which I think is important is in the space and cyber domains. These are new domains and a vast number of countries in the Indo-Pacific, not only don't have the capacity, they don't even have the domain knowledge in this area. Uh, On the other hand, we are getting into a more and more digital world where even if we may not want to have it, financial transactions, commercial transactions, and the whole economic uh, business of trade is all being digitalized. Uh, And therefore, space and cyber become critical in ensuring the well-being and economic security of, of all countries, whether they are small island states in the Pacific or large continental countries like ours. Now, in these situations, where four countries with core capacity the United States, Japan, India, and Australia in these sectors can come together and collaborate in a way that helps the rest of the Indo-Pacific community, Uh, I think signals the intent of these four countries to deliver public goods, not only in terms of hard security, but in terms of these advanced and critical technologies. And I think that is a positive sign. So I would certainly say that these are three good initial uh, steps taken by Quad. But a lot needs to be done on other promises in the field of infrastructure, in the field of regional trading arrangements, uh, and in, in, in various other commitments that they have pledged to undertake at the summit in May.
0: Ambassador Gokhale, you spoke about the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum. You know, this is an idea that President Biden unveiled pretty much on the eve of the Tokyo summit. And uh, India has signed up as well. Uh, Now, the IPEF was perhaps a response to, you know, criticism of the United States' policy in the Asia-Pacific on the economic domain because they withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership earlier. And then, you know, now China has kind of come forward and has become part of the RCEP as well. Uh, Now, the IPEF, we are told, is not going to be a trading arrangement of any kind. Uh, I'm just wondering what its economic muscle uh, is going to be and whether it is going to be able to do some of the things that you outlined like infrastructure development assistance and so on.
1: Well, frankly, Srinath, I don't think anybody yet uh, knows what the exact uh, scope and modalities of the IPEF will be. Uh, Clearly, it can't replace RCEP because RCEP is already uh, pretty much uh, established in the region. And uh, China as a very dominant player, but also Japan and Australia, uh, who who are part of Quad, are not going to sabotage RCEP for the IPEF purposes. So exactly what the IPEF will do is is not clear. Uh, However, I think one of the uh, key focus areas that they should be looking at is ensuring that competition in the Indo-Pacific, is on the basis of certain international, internationally approved practices and policies. Uh, to the extent that uh, you can create what we all call as a level playing field. Uh, 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 and if the IPF can act as a facilitator for that purpose, and even to some extent a watchdog uh, to warn against the use of uh, practices which are not part of the level playing field, we will actually be helping the smaller, more vulnerable, economically less developed economies in the region to have a chance at competing in the global marketplace or at least in the Indo-Pacific marketplace with the key advanced players. So uh, that is one uh, area where I think the IPKF can do a good job. Uh, the second, of course, is... Uh, how it can, whether it can coordinate uh, capacities that different countries have in a way in which it benefits a, th- a third country. For instance, India doesn't necessarily have capital, but it has good human uh, resources uh, and it has certain good practices as well. Japan, on the other hand, has capital and technology and so does the United States. How can we collaborate in such a way that their technology and and, and, uh, capital and our human resources and technical skills can be combined to, for instance, help the South Pacific island states to develop certain aspects of their economy? Now, this is one of the main points that have been mentioned in the Quad uh, uh, Summit statement, that the four countries will help the South Pacific economies and South Pacific countries To develop their own economy so this is where i think ipef can act as a platform but as i said uh as of now uh the the contours of the ipef are not quite clear and i think we will have to wait i have no doubt that working groups uh, and officials are already discussing the 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 shape and scope of this this uh particular initiative
0: The United States has also, you know, taken a few other initiatives. You mentioned the AUKOS earlier. There is the new initiative in West Asia, which is called I2U2. Uh, I'm just trying to understand, you know, what does the United States want to do by creating these overlapping network of partnerships and so on? I mean, is it a web which is designed to contain Chinese influence or is it going to become some kind of a cat's cradle?
1: Well, I think one thing is clear to me, and that is the United States does not have the capability now to handle uh, issues entirely by itself. Uh, There are limitations on it for various reasons, including domestic and uh, uh, external. Uh, And therefore, the United States has been making an effort to build more partnerships in the region. Now, uh, whatever may be the objective of the United States, the other participating countries need not necessarily be completely aligned with those objectives. Uh, For instance, even in the case of Quad, whereas the other three countries are treaty partners and allies of each other, India does not have a treaty with any of the three countries and is not an ally to any of them. Uh, that does not, however, mean that we do not share common interests. And wherever we do so, we partner with them in quad. Wherever it is not possible to do so, as we have seen, the United States has created new structures, in particular AUGUS. Uh, in that context, from India's perspective, uh, and I can only sort of sh- look at my own country's perspective, both the I2U2, and the Quad are essentially efforts by India to increase its footprint in regions it considers vital to its security by uh, uh, establishing platforms that give it a wider reach and that bring partners who India can partner with uh, and therefore, uh, in a sense, uh, expand their influence in a much bigger way than if we were to go it alone. Uh, And that is the way I would look at it from the Indian perspective. Now, the American uh, uh, perspective may well be uh, containment of China. But from the Indian perspective, I do not see how the I2U2, for instance, has anything to do with China. Uh, If anything, it is driven by uh, the current government's laser-like focus on the Gulf. Uh, The current government has Done substantial, uh, has put in substantial efforts to build not just uh, an economic relationship, but a security relationship with them as well. Because we see the Western Indian Ocean as part of our, our security, uh, framework. And we see these countries now in the maritime domain as neighbors or near neighbors, whether they are Oman or, 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 or the UAE or, or Saudi Arabia. Uh, and therefore I think We are driven here by our interests, first and foremost, not necessarily by American interests or by the desire to contain China. So I would certainly not say that from the Indian perspective, any of these platforms is um, uh, driven by our desire to contain the Chinese.
0: Uh,
1: Ambassador Gokhale, I want to
0: shift the focus a little bit towards the broader sort of geopolitics of the region, uh, including the sort of ongoing Russian war uh, against Ukraine. And, you know, ahead of the, before Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, the Russians and the Chinese had given a very lengthy joint statement, which you had sort of put out a very detailed analysis of as well, uh, in which they said that, you know, this is a very strong and a stable partnership and that nothing would sort of upset uh, that particular equation. Uh, and it seems like that has held through at least through these months of the war that Russia has waged against Ukraine, as well as the sanctions and other kinds of constraints that have been imposed on Russia itself. So I'm just wondering, what do you see as the sort of state of play between China and Russia today? If the war in Ukraine continues, will there be a difference? And I'd also like to have your thoughts on what all of this means for India.
1: So I think the singular uh, point of Chinese foreign policy, if there was one dominating strategic objective from 1949 until today, uh, it That has been to prevent the United States and Russia, either in the Soviet Union's form or in the form of the Russian Federation, from coming together on the same platform against, potentially against, the People's Republic of China. And therefore, uh, Chinese foreign policy has always played the two major powers, or at least countries that were the two major powers until maybe 10 years ago, off against each other in an effort to keep China uh, secure and uh, Chinese objectives uh, 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 achievable. Uh, In that context, uh, when the Chinese side believes that the United States has now become the existential threat, it makes perfect sense for them to ensure that Russia does not uh, slip away from their moorings in any way. And therefore, from the year 2000, when President Putin uh, became the president of Russia, it has been the consistent effort of the Chinese to make that relationship stronger and more durable and more secure with each passing year. Now, having said that, uh, I think the February 4, 2020 statement was a bit of uh, an overreach. And if one is to read the tea leaves, then the... uh, movement of Vice Foreign Minister Le Yuchang from the Foreign Office to the State Radio and Television Commission, uh, in a sense, indicates that at least one head has rolled uh, as a result of this development. Uh, Le Yuchang himself was responsible for the drafting and steering of this statement and for defending it subsequently after the 25th of February. Uh, so I certainly think that there was, that there, there, there has been some angst in China over the extent to which that statement has put China in a more difficult position than it ought to have been in. Uh, that's the first point. The second point is today China is, uh, bad, is trying to deal with two, uh, situations which are not necessarily complementary and might be contradictory. Uh, on the one hand, uh, the Chinese want to maintain a strong relationship with Russia. Uh, and that is part of their strategic objective. But on the other hand, the Chinese also understand that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is in the long run unsustainable for them to justify. And that if they continue to be seen as siding with the Russians, they will pay a political cost, of course, they are already doing so. But in the longer term, a possible economic uh, and diplomatic cost as well. And therefore, uh, in, a, in a way, their um, situation is way more difficult than ours. Uh, because as the uh, second most powerful country, they have to reconcile uh, these two uh, somewhat irreconcilable objectives... And their effort in doing so at the moment has not had very great success. Uh, On the other hand, it is very clear that they will not abandon Russia. In the last few weeks, their foreign ministry officials going up to the top have reiterated that this is a strategic relationship and that they stand by Russia because they believe that Russia is being bullied by the United States, by the European Union and by NATO. And they believe that uh, if the Russians are allowed to be bullied thus, then the next target will be China. Now, it, it has a huge implication, of course, for the Indo-Pacific. And that implication is that, uh, it, well, there are two implications. First, the Russian, the, the, the Chinese, by spreading the view that it is NATO's efforts at pushing into what was Russian backyard that prompted the russian uh, uh, invasion of the ukraine is in a sense conveying a message in the in the indo pacific that the quad which they call the asian nato if allowed to expand and challenge china's comfort level and space might bring the same sort of retaliation which will be detrimental to the whole region uh, uh, both in terms of security and economics so that is one uh, message that is being sent The other concern we ought ought to have is that the Chinese will expect a reciprocation from the Russians uh, because they have supported Russia against NATO and the United States in Europe. And therefore, they will expect Russia to back them when they oppose the whole idea of the Indo-Pacific as as an outlook, as a strategy, as well as, of course, platforms like the Quad. And when Russia and China get together to raise doubts in the Indo-Pacific, then, of course, a larger number of countries might uh, start hedging uh, because they might, so sort of the narrative might be far more palatable to them than if the Chinese were alone in this. So, in both ways, there will be significant implications for the Indo-Pacific, and I think it behooves the uh, the, the Quad countries, but also many other countries which share the values and, and ideals of Quad, uh, for instance, North, South Korea, uh, uh, New Zealand, Singapore, uh, Indonesia, and so on, to make it clear. That there is no uh, similarity between the situation as currently prevailing in Eastern Europe and the situation as currently prevailing in the Indo Pacific. There is absolutely no similarity. And therefore, there should not be uh, the, the concerns in one area need not be extrapolated uh, in toto to another. Sure. Uh, Ambassador Gokhale,
0: I have a final question, which is that India and China are going to be meeting at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit later this month. Uh, We know that India's position towards Russia on the Ukraine war is at least partly shaped by the dynamic between India and China. Uh, I don't want to get too much into the India-China bilateral relationship, uh, but I'm just wondering what kind of opportunity do you think this SCO Summit is likely to sort of present? Uh, The Chinese will clearly want India perhaps to engage more with them. They've already indicated in certain ways uh, I think particularly in the run-up to next year's, uh, you know, uh, BRICS summit, etc., the Chinese will want India to sort of warm up more. Uh, but clearly, India's own hands are tied because of the situation along the border, with China has done nothing uh, to restore status quo ante. So, I'm just wondering what could we reasonably expect out of this uh, particular meeting?
1: Well, uh, Srinath, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is a multilateral uh, institution. Uh, To that extent, the issues there are not related to India and China, but to the region as a whole. And uh, uh, if I may add, in the past few years, there has been some dissonance between the Indian position and the positions of both Russia and China on certain issues. And uh, it is generally the accepted form in the SCO to reflect India's views separately from those of the rest. I anticipate that on some issues... Uh, this uh, practice will uh, also continue this year. Uh, for instance, we can expect that on the Ukraine, the position that might be expressed by Russia, China, and possibly a few, if not all, of the Central Asian countries is not a position that India would like to adopt. Uh, because our position is clear and much more nuanced. Uh, so in those cases, we can expect language to be found, which will reflect the difference. And I don't think too much should be made of it. Uh, as far as India-Russia relations are concerned, I think uh, we have sort of found a balance after the Ukraine invasion. Uh, in our own national interest, we are engaging with them economically, uh, politically and diplomatically. But at the same time, I think it has been conveyed quite clearly, uh, even if privately, that what is happening in the Ukraine is unsustainable and difficult for India to justify. So I would say that the really interesting developments would be those related to uh, any possible interaction that might take place between the heads uh, of state and government of India and China, because this is the first time uh, that both will meet in person if both of them go to the summit. Uh, Now, uh, my understanding uh, of the situation has always been that uh, heads of state and government in such gatherings, despite whatever differences you may have bilaterally, uh, do engage because there are larger interests at at stake here, including those where we have a similar approach uh, uh, in the United Nations, in the World Trade Organization and in other international institutions. I would be surprised, therefore, if there is no bilateral meeting between the two. Uh, Now, the fact of the bilateral meeting itself Uh, uh, would suggest that uh, the two countries are acting in a mature and responsible fashion. And I think that they have done so after June 2020 in a very mature and responsible fashion. I don't think it will mean that we have resolved the bilateral issues, uh, both the current uh, impasse as well as any uh, longer term issues that we have. But uh, I think in a sense, it does help in bringing the temperature down uh, it offers scope for the discussion to continue in the coming year and next year there is not one but two occasions where the Chinese leader has to travel to India both for BRICS and for the G20 and it therefore buys space and time for a possible resolution of, or, or, or of issues or an amelioration of the situation such that we return to a more normal track of bilateral relations. Uh, Having said that, Srinath, I think the government of India has made its position quite clear, which is that unless and until we find a viable solution uh, with regard to the immediate crisis on the line of actual control in Western Ladakh, the relationship will continue to be less than normalized. I don't want to use the word abnormal, but less than normalized. Uh, And I think that message has gone across quite clearly to the Chinese side. Uh, The Chinese always do assess how consistent a country can be in its position. But I think by now they would have come to the conclusion that this position that the government of India has taken is not a a negotiating position. It is in some senses a bottom line. Uh, And the Chinese are a pragmatic people. They understand bottom lines. They may not agree with bottom lines, but then they adjust strategy and tactics accordingly. So I think this will be, uh, if it happens, if, if a meeting happens, will be the meeting to watch in the SCO. Although, as I began by saying, this is a multilateral institution and therefore the focus should not be bilateral.
0: Sure. On that uh, very sober note, Ambassador Gokhale, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a delight to speak to you and get your views on such a range of issues. Thank you, Srinath. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and the team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.